Welcome to Technically Minded, a podcast brought to you by Credera. We get technology leaders together to discuss what's happening in our world. Our discussions are always fun, lighthearted, and frankly opinionated. But hopefully it gives you a sense of what matters and what to pay attention to and what to ignore. Today, we're going to talk about machine learning, AI. It turns out this stuff is important, or so we keep being told. I mean, we all know that it's going to solve all of the car accidents, no more unexpected deaths. It's going to diagnose whatever condition you have, tell you what vitamins to take and when to take them, and the world's going to be an amazing place. At least that's what we hear. In reality, though, what we see is that most models, up to 90% of machine learning models, never make it to production. With me, as always, is Jason Goth, our CTO and resident gray-haired expert. <laughs> Welcome, Jason. Thanks, Vincent. And today, as always, also is our lovely producer, Sarah, who is here to keep us, well, frankly, honest. I'll do my best. <laughs> it's a big challenge, no doubt. So with that, I want to kind of pass it back and forth between us again, Jason, and just talk about some of the problems, some of the challenges. I think you have a great line, by the way, on this, don't you? What do you like to say, your phrase about some people's purpose in life? Some people's purpose in life maybe to serve as a warning to others. <laughs> That's the one. So, so today's episode is really about us and our experiences, uh, personal experiences from some of my examples. And I think our collective experience working with many clients in this domain is, is to be a warning to, to you, the listeners, and hopefully avoid some of the mistakes that we've made throughout time. Sound good? With that, I want to choose, I want to start with one here. And it's really a, it's, it's fascinating because it's not really about machine learning at all, as, as you'll hear in a second, but it turns out to be remarkably important. And I think because it's not typically associated, that's exactly why it's often ignored. And that is, we really want to start, if you think about machine learning, you really want to start with a design first approach, or as some people would call it a human centered design. And the thinking here is really, you have to remember that if you're going to do machine learning, at the end of the day, it's going to be in production because that's one of our core beliefs. And that means that some human is going to be involved at the end of the day. And so to make it real, one of the clients that we had was a, was a hospital. So I don't know if you know this, but the way it works is if you get admitted to the hospital, the first thing that they'll do is they'll assign you a bed. So they say, great, um, Sarah, you're coming in to have a baby, as you recently experienced, yes? And what you may not have known, Sarah, is that is that the nurse actually chose your room. Did you get it? You didn't choose your room, right? They chose it for you. Yeah, they chose yeah, it. That's right. And so the way that works is all these beds are different. So if you're, if you're a cardiac patient, they have a cardiac bed. If you're getting a hip replacement, they're going to have a hip replacement bed. Uh, maybe not that specific, but an orthopedic bed. If you're giving birth, they're going to have a birthing bed. And so they don't have... So they don't have each one of those types of bed for every single room. One room will have each one of those beds. And so the question becomes like, if a new patient comes in, which bed do you assign them? Now, in some cases, if you're having a baby, it's very obvious you give them the baby birthing bed. And if you have a cardiac, you need that. But what if you just come in and you're very sick? You know, you have a cold or you have, you're, you're, just, you're not feeling well, maybe you have pneumonia. Well, a, a number of those beds would be perfectly acceptable for you. And so the question is, which bed do I now assign you? And you might not think this matters, but actually it matters a lot because at the end of the day, if another patient comes in with like a cardiac incident and there's no cardiac beds, guess what? They can't admit that patient anymore. They can't have them, right? And so what that means is like you want to do optimal allocation. So it seems like a perfect machine learning problem here. 
And so we did. We built a model. We predicted effectively what beds the people should be allocated to. We back tested it, meaning we like looked at the historical data and we validated like this looks good. And, and sure enough, like many of these projects, as many of the CIOs I think on this, listening to this podcast will will have a, a testament to. The deck looked amazing, and, and if we only deployed this model, we'd have you know tens of millions of dollars worth of savings. And so we did. We deployed it. We went back a few weeks later and uh, wanted to just see what kind of results we had. And can you guess how much of that you know tens of millions of dollars of savings we saw? I'm going to guess not very much. <laughs> you would be correct. Winner, winner. That is correct. Yeah, we saw basically nothing above just randomness. We saw no real difference. And so, of course, I started panicking because they had just paid us to do this model and we said we could. And, and I'm now trying to investigate what's going on here. So we start debugging it, you know, like to the point of full stack traces everywhere. Everything's in debug mode now. And we can't find anything wrong. Everything looks great. The model was working. We back tested again. The, the answers look good. We're not seeing any bugs anywhere. We're seeing it show up on the screens appropriately. We finally ask the nurses in the hospital. So we actually go out there, we meet with them, we say, hey, what happened? Did you see this? Did it look different? What was going on? And you know what the nurse said to me? This is the charge nurse. She's the one in charge of the floor, by the way. She said, oh, um, I don't know. I said, what do you mean you don't know? She's like, I don't, I don't use that screen. I said, what do you mean you don't use that screen? Like, how do you do bed assignment? She's like, well, somebody comes in and I assign them a bed. And I'm like, right. And I thought you used the screen and we're showing you this value and you're supposed to assign this bed. She's like, yeah, no. And, and the backstory here a little bit that we didn't know going in is that, you know, in a hospital in particular, nurses are often sort of the punching bag. <laughs> They're kind of the low, low man or woman on the totem pole in some sense. And this is one of the domains in which they actually have authority. The charge nurse in particular, the person who's like really worked hard, really hard and done a great job, gets the, gets the ability, gets the privilege from their perspective of actually assigning a person to a bed. And so now we're removing that privilege, the thing that she's earned after all this or he's earned after all these years. And that didn't go over well. And so my point here is like, in this case, if we would have understood from the onset that this was something that she saw a lot of pride in, she took a lot of pride in, something she was excited about, she really saw it as her privilege, we would have approached it very differently. Also, it turns out, by the way, that like asking her to go to a different screen was a fool's errand, as we probably should have known, just frankly, right? Like, again, if you take that human-centered approach here and you ask yourself, what does an end user actually want to do? You don't want to have to pull up a whole new screen. You don't want to have to like look at two different things. You want to just have your normal workflow and integrate it back in. Does that make sense? It does, and I think you have to remember that all of these things have a larger purpose, right? We're not doing machine learning for machine learning's sake. That we're always trying to accomplish some goal, whether it be assign a bed or some other function. And there's a value to that. Like we're doing this because you know supposedly there's some you know value to it. It does things better or faster or with less error. And if you don't start by understanding how it's going to impact, well, one thing you don't have a good way to measure whether mm -hmm. or not it's successful because the first thing you got to even decide is what is it that you're going to measure right and how is it that people will achieve that measurement think think of a recommendation engine for let's say an e-commerce site like you know you, you put something in your cart and it recommends you here put this also in your cart like well how are we going to measure that the, the the measurement, that one's pretty obvious. Well, they put that other thing in the cart 
and, and purchase it as well. And so we can say, yes, that that's what we want to measure. And so we can then present that to users in different ways. Oftentimes when let's say that people don't, let's say they don't put that in the cart, we assume the model's wrong. Mm-hmm. Like it's not recommending the right product. Well, that may not even be it. It may not be, it may be like in your example that it was just displayed in the wrong place. Yeah. And so that again, it requires a lot of testing and, and a lot of understanding of users to then determine, well, is the, is the model what's wrong or is, is the user interface what's wrong or is it this just entire effort isn't worth the, yeah. the value in the first place? I think it's great. And, and by the way, the other, back to your point of the metric design, you know, maybe they even put it in their cart and they, they even buy it and it seems like a great success. But what if they always return whatever they just bought? Because you've recommended something, they assume it fits the purpose and in fact it doesn't. You know, I think that the canonical example here would be in email campaigns. Marketers often are expected to optimize that and so they optimize the, the headline, they optimize the message, the CTA. But what if that leads to a bunch of unsubscribes, for example? Maybe that's not the right thing to do. So mm-hmm. really good point. So Vincent, did you solve the problem for the hospital? <laughs> it's a, so yeah, good question. Yeah, the follow-up there is is yes, actually we did. And, and again, like in this case, if you just started with that, we would have got there much faster. But it turns out that they already had a process by which they would assign the room to a patient. And, and of course, that's for all the tracking, all the billing, all of the things you need to do here, right? In that system, there's a drop-down, basically said like which room number you wanted. Um, we just changed the default. If you just change the default to the right room, more often than not, they don't care. Now, sometimes, you know, some doctors on their, you know, naughty list, if you will, and they want to spread out their patients to make them do much longer rounds. That's really a thing, it turns out. Um, so they'll still change it sometimes. But at least in the majority of cases, they were happy to accept the recommendation. And we didn't, it didn't feel like we were being intrusive and changing anything. We're just giving them a default setting. And I don't, I, you know, at the end of the day, I don't think that, Many of the other hospitals even knew that there was a default. There was some machine learning running in the background, but we saw some of that saving. So yeah, good question. Thanks. Great. Jason, what's on your list here? Well, my my first thing would be similar to yours. Yours was, you know, take a, a human centered design approach. Mine would be keep it simple. It may not it may be that we don't even need right a uh, a machine learning approach. One of my uh clients was a a restaurant and they always struggled with what you know what to recommend in terms of an upsell like can we upsell people on this or that and um it turns out that if it's cold people want coffee and if it's hot people want ice cream and (laughs) you know the models didn't do a whole lot better than that uh and so if you've purchased a drink uh, suggesting another of the same drink is usually a good idea, right? You know, these little tabletop uh, uh, recommendation engines. And so I think that a lot of times we rush to do something, but if we start like with the design, with the metrics in mind, we can say, well, is there a very simple way to do this? There's another really good reason to do that, which is, we, we, this is one of my others, I'm jumping ahead, but we'll, we'll talk about this later, is you tend to always need to have some type of fallback. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, machine learning models can, well, machine learning models will always give an answer. And uh, unfortunately, you know, you don't necessarily know if that answer is right beforehand. And I mean, if you knew all the reasons and what went into it and how to determine the right answer, then you wouldn't need the machine learning. Right. right. So uh, as we do that, 
you know, there's a need for a fallback in case a, a model gets deployed that is you know, incorrect or provides worse outcomes. We measure that and fall back. So, you know, keeping it simple and, and starting with you know, just a simple rule, you can get a lot of benefit and then you can iterate on that. But it, it, it gives the, all the foundation that you need uh, to start doing more and more and more advanced type of predictions. Yeah, that's really good. And I think what's interesting about those first two, the, the human-centered design or design-first principle and keeping it simple, um, statistician is what I like to use for that expression, by the way, keep it simple, statistician, um, is those things are actually both done before you do any real machine learning in AI. And I think it's intentional that we're saying those two first because that's where you should always start. In fact, you might learn, to your point, either because it's not actually needed like perhaps you're trying to optimize something that nobody will ever use or because there's a much simpler approach that gets you the vast majority of the value at, you know, one, one thousandth the complexity, you should just do those things. <laughs> and so start here always is I think what we're saying. Do you agree? Uh, absolutely. So number three on the list is, is really about the limitations of your data. And I, and I know many people listening to this will think, well, obviously. I mean, of course, this is always the first question you get. Like, do you have data to go build that model? And the answer always, I, <laughs> it's funny. I've never, I've never once had an executive tell me like, oh, we don't have that good of data. We don't have that much data. They always say, oh, Vince, you're going to be so impressed. We have so much data. It's just wonderful. We have so, we collect everything. We have so much. And that's, that's good. But my point here is when it comes to machine learning, asking do you have uh, the right amount or the enough data is, is a natural question, but frankly, the wrong question. What you really have to ask is, do I have the data to solve this particular problem? Is it of the right type to solve this particular problem? It might be fine that you have a ton of data somewhere else, but if it doesn't actually address the question at hand, it's not going to work. So I'll give you an example from GE days. <clears throat> If you think about GE, one of the big things they have are you know, jet engines. And these, these things, by the way, these modern jet engines are amazing, amazing creations. Um, we won't get into it, but they're amazing. Let me just say that. And they generate a huge amount of data. We're talking like a terabyte of data on like a cross-country flight or international flight, like a terabyte of data. Just incredible. Here's the thing. With all that data, so you've said, hey, you know what I want to do? I want to monitor this asset. Predictive maintenance is always the name of the game in, in these industrial settings. So can you tell something's going to break before it breaks? You say, absolutely. We have all this data, terabytes of data, every single flight, terabytes of data. So you have all the data would be what I think a typical executive would think. The answer is no, you don't. <laughs> Any guesses as to why? <laughs> Well, I'm guessing there are not that many failures. Ah, you got it. Yeah, a guy from airlines knows this, right? Luckily for all of us, most of the failure modes that we see, like 80, 90% of all the failure modes we see in these industrial settings, and particularly like a jet engine, we've never seen before. And so that's actually a really good thing, of course, because that means that we're able to fly these planes reliably and we're all getting from point A to point B safely. But it becomes a real problem for machine learning because we don't have anything to actually test our models against. We've never seen a failure mode like that. So if you said, hey, where's the data that shows me what this looks like? The answer is we don't have it. We've never seen it before. And so it's a bit more nuanced than do you have the data? Because again, these things generating terabytes of data, of course we have the data you would think. But actually we don't have any around this particular failure mode. 
Vincent, one quick question. Maybe everyone else knows, but what is the failure mode? Oh, yeah, thanks. Sorry. Yeah, that's some technical jargon. <laughs> the the way that the asset, the engine itself actually fails. So is it something about maybe a vibration and now the, the fan blades are vibrating and wobbling and hitting the cowling perhaps? Or maybe it's like, you know, if you think about your car, the oil is kind of old and you needed to change it. And now there's some performance degradation that would come from that. All of those types of ways that an asset would fail or stop working properly, each one of those would be a failure mode. And, and the point is that they don't often break in the same way. Every, when one breaks, it's always in, in a new way. So having the data even, you know, there are not many breaks, but having the data about one of them doesn't tell you anything about the next failure that's gonna happen, yeah. right? So the next failure will probably be something entirely different because and and it generally is because those engines and you know are so well engineered that if they do find a failure mode they generally go fix it yeah which is a good thing after all yeah. i mean these yeah. are great I'm things i'm thankful for that yeah. <laughs> i think we all especially as consultants and i think that's the same and, you know jet engines are you know there are not many people out manufacturing jet engines but there are people engineering a lot of other things you know, from you know self-driving cars to roombas to everything else where you have those kind of situations where well what i'm looking for is something that would be destructive but doesn't happen very often yeah that's exactly right so so the answer here by the way is is even if you don't have the right data it's actually possible you still might be able to solve the problem so to the point ge actually does solve this problem and and the clever approach here is to recognize that while we don't have what it looks like when these assets fail that is, I've never seen a failure like this before, perhaps, from the data set. We do have what it looks like in, in abundance. We have what it looks like when things are working perfectly. And so we actually invert the problem. We say, well, can we model what looks like success in this case? And then anytime it doesn't look like it's working perfectly, then we can alert a team and say, hey, something doesn't seem quite right. You should look at it. You should investigate. And so by flipping the question and inverting it effectively from what does this failure look like to what does success look like, we're able to actually still address this particular problem. And so back to the point, we don't have the, we don't have the data to catch what we want in this case, the limitations of the data. We have a lot of data, but it doesn't catch what we want. We do have uh, the inverse of that. And so that might be a solution in some cases. In other cases, you just need to go instrument or you need to go log something differently or build something around it to capture the data. Yeah, and I think that, I mean, that may sound like a bit of an esoteric example, but I think it's generally true. People that we work with, they almost always have to tweak the question they're asking mm -hmm. uh, of the data to achieve the outcome, right, that they're, they're trying to achieve. It's never quite as simple as, as as what you might you know initially think you know uh, churn is another good example right yeah. people are always thinking about churn and someone might say well we we look at, at our call center data and if someone calls the call center right then they're you know 20 30 40 percent more likely to churn because they've had some problem and they've called the call center yeah. well it may sound like okay great yeah that's a really we have the data to answer the question, but the you know in 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 this particular example, the reason the people all those people were calling the call center was to cancel the service. Yeah, right. So late. if you don't get this, the only way they could cancel the service, and so like it's not very helpful to say, well, let me let me take all the people that have called the call center, for example, 
and have these other factors that the alternative and let's go run a campaign to keep them from canceling the service yeah. too late. Like, yeah. because the thing that you've used as an input is what you're trying to prevent. Yeah. That's another, another way where you have to really understand what the behavior is, what you're trying to accomplish. And is there a way to ask a different question of the data? So, yeah, that's really good. And I, and I totally agree. And if you didn't catch it, Listeners, that that's a real life example that we did see in in real life, unfortunately. Um, so moving on, <laughs> number four, Jason. So I would say, and this is an expression I use a lot. I think it's pretty clever, but maybe it's not. Uh, <laughs> you think a lot of things are clever. Yeah, so. <laughs> it, it's there's there's more engineering in an AI or ML solution than there is AI or ML. <laughs> that is pretty clever. And and by and by engineering, I mean software development and other things and. You know, as, as you know, some of these examples, all of these examples, when we talk about, we've been talking about the model, but like, how do we integrate that and use it? You know, whether that be the the recommendation engine, for example, like, well, we can come up and we can say, here's, here's some products that have been added to a cart based on that and this user profile and the time of day and all of these other inputs. What do we think? is most likely, you know, to get that person to buy, you know, upsell something or cross sell something. But that has to be consumed by, it has to be, that model has to be served by something and it has to be consumed by something. Mm -hmm. Right. And you know, the, the serving part of it, this is typically what gets referred to as ML ops or, you know, AI ops or ML ops. And I think we're going to do another session on that particular, particularly so we won't get you know too into the weeds there but you know you think about it well we have to have all this data we have to train it we have to deploy it you have to have make it available to applications all of that has to be engineered mm-hmm. um but then from the consuming side well i have to be able to go out and consume those recommendations and if we're going to really do things right and say, well, does that recommendation improve over a baseline? Or if we try two or three different recommendation models, which one works best? We have to have a lot of A-B testing or or uh, multi-variate testing infrastructure in place. We have to be able to monitor what what is shown, what is done, or, or what is purchased, and then determine if it's working. And all of that has to be built into the system. Right, A/B testing framework, fail safe. If we if we want to fail, recognize something's not or having a a negative impact and and back it out. All of that has to be engineered in, and people often underestimate the amount of work that that is. And, and in a lot of cases, it's the majority of the work. And to your point, you, Vincent has a great saying, which is like, "There's no machine learning cannot provide any value unless it's in production." <laughs> that's right. right. And it's not ARML if it's not in production. Right. And you know that's definitely true. Otherwise, it's a nice you know what if spreadsheet on mm-hmm. on your laptop. And so, getting it into production, serving it up, consuming it, is the work. And you know, I keep we keep kind of heading back our first two points, which were like, well, we have to think then about how that gets consumed by users of that application and design that in and and if we don't do that if we make these as you know you know uh, science experiments in a a data science lab then they are often not going to add value yeah no i I absolutely agree number five on the list here is you really can't decompose 
modeling problems, machine learning problems like you would in software domains. And that was a bunch of technical jargon. Don't worry. I'll explain what that means, Sarah. Uh, I'm seeing, a, I'm already seeing a glare. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and what I mean here is like, look, we in in software engineering, you know, there were these there were these really funny and and, and some people still use them by the way, but they're these funny interview questions, and it's it's things like, "Hey, how many ping pong balls would fit on a Boeing seven thirty seven? If you just if you just filled up the entire cabin with ping pong balls, how many? Any ideas, Sarah? Okay, hold on. <laughs> Five hundred thousand. <000. laughs> Five hundred thousand. Nice. Okay. Really low, I. Really by the way, I literally got a question once during an interview um, with with this hedge fund in Chicago, um, and the question was, "What is the probability that you're going to meet somebody else on the street who has the same number of hairs as you?" Like you said exactly. This was in, an, in an interview. Yeah, I literally got that interview question once, <laughs> and like that requires the same type of thinking, and the thinking here is something like. Well, let's see. First, I need to estimate how many hairs are on my head. Okay, well, like, how do I do that? And you're like, well, I don't know. How many, you know, square inches of head do I have, you know, with actual hair on it? And, like, how many hairs per square inch? You just keep decomposing the problem until you can get to a rough estimation. Then you kind of, like, recompose, just multiply all the things back together. Oh, and so you, you get some. Want me to just throw out a random number. <clears throat> well, <laughs> I didn't decompose the problem. Yeah, that's right. And this is, this is exactly my point it, is that engineers often are, we, we have a selection bias in our interview process and just the way we do our education such that people naturally are trained and these neural pathways are created such that if you ask an engineer these questions, these are the, these are the ways they'll start breaking down the problem thinking about it. And my point is that actually doing that in the modeling domain is a bad thing. Oftentimes that's actually the wrong way to go. And so now we've selected these people who think this way. And now I'm saying like, yeah, but don't do that. And, I, and let me make it real. So we have a transportation client and they were thinking about the idea of pricing, um, how much it costs to basically ship something from point A to point B. And so they break down the country into these, you know, 3,500 lanes, if you will. So like point A, point B combinations. And each lane needed its own price because the cost to go from Denver to San Francisco should be different than Denver to Seattle, which probably should be different from, I don't know, Houston to Dallas, for example. All seems reasonable. And by the way, for each of those lanes, they have different kinds of trucks. So maybe if you need ice cream, you need a refrigerated truck. If you just need a flatbed, if does it be covered? Do you need like a less than full truck load? So they had, you know, some types of assets here, roughly four different types of trucks they wanted to be able to price. 3,500 lanes. So we're talking about like roughly 12,000 prices, a little more than that you need each day. How much it costs to ship these goods. And so an engineer started using engineering best practices in some sense, not literally, but conceptually best practices here. Um, started breaking down the problem. Said, okay, well, let me figure out how much it costs for this type of truck from this point A to this point B and this kind of truck from point A to point C and, and started doing this. The challenge is that turns out to be A, complicated, but B, dead wrong. And my point here is like, actually there's a really important geospatial component to this, meaning that if you do a price from Dallas to Denver, that price better be pretty close to what it costs to go from Houston to Denver. Like imagine a world that, that that's not true. Imagine a world where like, wow, we don't have very many trucks in Dallas right now. We don't have a lot of stuff going to Denver. So we, or we have a lot of stuff going to Denver. We don't have very many trucks. So the price must be very high. Terrific. That's fine. That's reasonable. But what if you have a bunch of trucks in Houston? Well, those trucks could just relocate. 
it's a four hour drive. It's not super fun, but if it's 10 times the value to go to da- from Dallas to Denver than Houston, they'll happily move. Meaning that like people across effectively the country, the space and the space, the geospatial domain here, they actually can move <laughs> and they will move accordingly. And that's sort of what the dynamic pricing is meant to encourage. But if these systems are all trained independently, they have no idea what's going on around them. When you run the Dallas model, if you're not telling it what's going on in Houston at that same moment, it's not going to be aware and it's going to give a price independent of that. And so you're not being efficient. And, and by the way, there's also a temporal component to this. For example, if I know that if I take a load from, let's say I'm in Dallas and I take a load from Dallas to Denver today and they're going to pay me $500, if I waited till tomorrow, they're going to pay me $1,000, then guess what? I'm going to wait till tomorrow. Right, And so these things have to be considered in this problem solving. And so if you approach the problem as a typical software engineering would, which is sort of break it down to its constituent parts, you're going to get the wrong answer. And to Jason's point earlier that he, <laughs> that he alluded to, machine learning will always give you an answer. And that's the risk here. It's like you're going to get an answer and you think, oh, that one's terrific. Until somebody comes along and points out that, no, that's actually the wrong answer, you probably won't even know. And so that's the real risk here. Yeah, I view this as somewhat of a Conway's law problem. Conway's law states that systems tend to end up looking like the organization. So if you have a marketing department and a operations department, you'll probably end up having a marketing system and an operation system, you know, something like that, because that's how the communications work in the organization, how budget gets allocated in the organization, and then therefore the systems tend up reflecting that. So you know, people come in and look at data and, you know, and they look up, they end up looking at the data for their part of the organization, mm-hmm. right? And then taking all the things from their part of the organization, their applications and, and the data they know about into their models, they don't often look outside of that. So, you know, you have a great example about uh, car and oil changes oh, yeah. and all that. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. Yeah, so so you'll love this, Sarah, because you know you know marketing well. Which is, so we we're talking to an auto manufacturer recently, an OEM, and in the conversation, it came out that you know naturally they send out coupons for or discount codes for oil changes, and that seems like a perfectly reasonable thing to do because they want you to come to the dealership, they can upsell you on whatever, whatever, all good. Ask them, well, how do you know when to send out the coupon? And they say, oh, well, well, obviously we model that. We use machine learning and we model. Like, and say, oh, that's super interesting. I said, well, like, how do you do that? And they said, well, we, we effectively go look at each city. We figure out where the person lives. So you live here in Dallas, Sarah. Um, and we figure out, like, in Dallas, the average person drives 30 miles each day. So then we know last time you were here, we figure out you're going to drive this many days a week at 30 miles a day. And we need to know oh, 5,000, so we just divide. And there you go. We know when to send you the coupon based off this, this estimation. And I said, that's interesting, <laughs> but don't you actually know exactly how many miles are on that car? And they said, well, what do you mean? I said, well, you have the telemetry data from the car itself. The car, I don't know if you know this, but basically every modern car nowadays sends a bunch of data back to the OEMs through the cloud and whatever, whatever. And so actually given us a VIN number, they could get the data and figure out exactly how many miles are on your car and send you the coupon when it's actually appropriate. So if you take a vacation, you know, a two-week vacation or a month-long sabbatical because you have a kid or whatever, like they should know that you didn't drive for that month and not send you the coupon because you're not that many miles yet. And to Jason's point, they said, yeah, but that lives in a different division. Like that, that's somebody else's thing. And we don't have access to that data because somebody else built it. 
because it's yeah. not theirs. And and that's the point where also I would say, kind of a a corollary to to keep it simple and in this it it solved the right problem. Yeah. Right. And and so the, the problem to solve as you know for us we're consultants is isn't let's design a better model. It's let's go figure out how to get that data from that division. Correct. Right. And 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 somehow aggregate the data. Yeah, you know, it, it, it doesn't mean that you don't take these other factors into consideration, but you know, now we can get this data, we can get much more accurate. And there and there may be other divisions, you know, in that example, other divisions that that may have other data that might even improve that more. For example, if you if you know that that person you know, through, through whatever leases up, for yeah, their leases up. Exactly. You know, you're, you, maybe you don't want to send them an oil change. You want to send them the, Hey, why don't you upgrade your lease? Right. Email. And yeah. you may not even want to send it an email, right? Maybe the answer is if you know on the car right, and you, you have this now, most cars have this now, like, you know, get your oil change light comes on. And you know, if, if there's maybe a way to integrate with the car you know, the other way to say like, get your oil change. Here's a coupon, mm-hmm. right? Uh, in the uh, in-car entertainment uh, area. So there's a lot of different things to do there. Uh, if you can break down some of those silos of data, break down the silos of data. So you've talked about thinking about it the right way and solving the right problem. And don't let me get us too far off track, but how would you encourage someone to actually do that? Yeah, that's it. well. I think comes back to the point we've talked about before, which is really focus around. Start with the end user in mind. So to your point, like I'd even go a step further, which is like the infotainment center on a on a car is a great place to show something like you know an oil change. And you know maybe some of the car manufacturers are being clever now, and they'll even like map it for you. Like, do you want an oil change? Here's the here's the route. We'll pre-program it for you, and that's that's kind of cute. But what if you took it even a step further and you said, well, like why don't people come get oil changes, especially for high-end cars, you know, where you, you don't really, yes, you could go to someplace a little bit cheaper, but convenience for an extra 20 bucks, probably worth it to you. So what if instead they said to you, have the system from the car. <clears throat> we know you need an oil change today. Like today's the day you need an oil change or next week you need an oil change. What if they, they sent you a text and said, hey, we noticed you need an oil change. We can pick up your car because again they know when you drive. So they could say, "Oh, you, Jason, you leave for work every day to go to the office at 8 a.m. No problem. We can pick up your car at 7:45 or 7:30 if you want. Uh, leave you a loaner car, and then return your car in the evening. Hit one to confirm. Like that would be amazing, right? Like that's a totally different experience, and they have all of the data. And I'll tell you the reason they don't do that today is because those are all disparate systems that don't talk that's not exactly connected. right like, yeah that's the marketing you know that would involve and that goes back to the engineering like if we took that user experience model well that means we would have to touch this system and this system and the the loaner car system like well we need a system right like well let's don't do that let's we got to stay within our lane of of what we have budget control over that's and right. instead of focusing you know, it focuses solutions on the way the organization is designed. Again, Conway's problem, and not necessarily on what would be the best, you know, experience for the user. And so, I would, you know, that's a that's a great example of how thinking about the problem a little differently probably ends up with a very different uh, solution. It, to answer your question specifically, you know, I would say that one way is to focus on those two things: like what's the value to the user, mm-hmm. and how would they want to see interact with this and then figure out okay then what what implementations do we need to go do that and that then go address the right problem 
and again, that's going to my bias as the engineer is it's going to generally involve a lot of engineering of a lot of systems. And, and so what we, we also really encourage is, um, whoever is, is driving that, let's say it's marketing or someone else is you're going to have to think about this as a broader problem. And, um, one of, that's one of the things we help help customers do. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I think it, it really comes back to like, how are you going to get those insights? How do you take that approach? And if you have a design team today, like leverage them, tap them on the shoulder and say, hey, help us think through this entire journey. If not, you know, hire someone. This is this is a really hard domain to try and just kind of wing, frankly. We have some great people, Jake Carter in particular, who, look, I've sat in, I don't know, a dozen plus of his workshops. And every time I'm a little bit blown away to the point that I will never run one of the workshops myself. I've sat in many of them and I just can't, he's so good at that. And they're just people who are gifted at that exact thing. And so if you have those people, tap them on the shoulder. Um, if not, hire them. And then the second part of that, I think is, because it crosses so many organizational boundaries, I think you're never get executive sponsorship. If you're not the CIO directly yourself or the CMO, and even if you are, you're probably gonna have to work with your colleagues on this to tap into you know, the marketing team and the dealership team in the case of the automotive and the telemetry team and the IT team and et cetera. That's gonna require some, some real shift. And to the CEOs out there, I would say, this is, this is the future, really. Like you're going to have to figure out how to solve this. We've built up all of these domains of technology to solve their particular use cases, but you have to zoom out and choose the right metrics. And it's not it's not how many people opened up an email campaign for marketing, or how many new subscribers you got for marketing, or how many new cars you sold to the to the uh, to that team, the sales team. It's actually a lot more broad now because we know that by leveraging data and the technology across that ecosystem is so much more powerful. And if anyone's wondering, Jake Carter is Cordero's <laughs> chief innovation officer. Oh yeah, thank you. He's great. That. Yeah, we should probably have him on and talk about how he does we that. Should. Yeah, Good idea. Good. Okay, Jason, you're up to the, you're up you're up to the ultimate one. I did the penultimate. These are my favorite words, by the way. Penultimate, and now you're at the ultimate number six. Yeah, number six for me was uh, data scientists don't know how much things cost. What? So, <laughs> no, you're right. What are you going to say to that, Vincent? <laughs> I'm going to say he's exactly right. I don't, like, I, 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 like that's Jason's problem. I don't know. Just give me the infrastructure. I don't. What bill? Who? It, we have to pay. I thought. I thought AWS was free. Is that not right, Jason? If if I'm ever on the Price Is Right, and you know, it's like you can win the car if you can guess how much it costs. Like the last person on earth I would call Vincent. He'd be like, "It's sitting right there. It must be free." Yeah, you know, isn't it free? Just hand me the keys. It costs nothing. Just hand me the keys. Yeah, they they do. They'll be like, yeah, you know, uh, we were joking yesterday. We were down in Houston yesterday, and we were joking uh, with the the Google team down there that Vincent's answer to everyone's like, "How big of a cluster do you need? How big of a this do you need?" And his answer is always the same thing: well, "Just give me the biggest one you have." Right? How big do you have? Because that's the one I need. <laughs> what is the biggest? That's the one I need. Because I'm a data scientist, after all. And then when he needs another one, he'll create another one and leave that one running, right? And uh, I thought they were one-time use. Yeah, pay yeah, for so. pay for two. So, <laughs> no, it, it, this, you know, and you know, the, the good example is the uh, the twelve thousand pricing models you, you mentioned earlier, right? Yeah. Like that's probably a whole, you know d very different divisions all creating large clusters to price and serve and all of these models as opposed to which is getting a less you know optimal answer, but it's also wasting a lot of money in terms of, of infrastructure and, and data. You know, often we'll see, we'll go in and we'll see the same data set, the large data set that's very expensive to, to maintain and host 
hopping around five or six times. And, and some of that is, some of that is certainly organizational. Mm-hmm. It's not, it's not only the data scientists that don't know how much things <laughs> cost. It's most organizations. Um, because they'll be like, well, I want a copy. Well, I want my copy, right? Yeah. As opposed to like, let's find a way, you know, to engineer this so that we can share a copy. So our advice is always, let's make sure we factor cost into this, right? And cost will often, as an input, will often change the output. Let me give an example of that is what if you were doing shakes and you want to recommend like, or ice cream Mm -hmm. flavors and you want to recommend ice cream flavors and you have a special, this month we have the special brownie ice cream shake. Well, that usually requires a lot of inventory. It's a little bit back of like breaking down silos too. Well, if you take into that inventory, like, well, we should really always recommend the special one because we've bought a bunch of special inventory for it. And if we don't use it, it goes to waste. Right. Right. And, and the, the increase of, let's say we, you know, 5% of the time we recommend something else, you know, strawberry or, or some other thing besides brownie. Well, that's great. It may drive up 1%, you know, incremental sales, but now I've got all of this wasted inventory and I end up losing money over whether I'd, you know, was successful with the recommendation fewer times mm-hmm. right now. You could say, well, let's use some machine learning and buy the right number of brownies. But uh, for which I need the biggest cluster that Google yeah, makes. Yeah, that's or exactly Amazon right. Makes, but, just so you know. Yeah, that's exactly right. So <laughs> the the point there is, though, you have to figure the cost of all of these things into it, whether it's the cost of all the engineering, all the data, all the modeling, and find a solution. Ultimately, we're trying to find a solution that adds a lot of value, like to users and, and to uh, clients. And cost has to be a factor of that. Yeah, and in, in my defense, Jason, just saying, in my defense, I don't even know, you know, when I first got this question, which is like, well, how big of a cluster do you need? My answer's like, I don't know, the biggest. And, and part of that was intellectual laziness, just to be really clear, I'm not gonna lie to you. The other part though is, it's not obvious, like even how much memory you need. You say, well, my data set, my raw feature set is this size, okay. But then how is Python processing? It's written in Python. How's it processing? I don't know. I called some library. Like, I don't know what they're doing with it. Did they copy it five times over? Do they, you know, shift it over? Does it, I, don't, I don't know. And even how many, like, how many actual nodes you need? I don't know. Like, more is better, probably. <laughs> but probably not, because it's not perfectly, it's not embarrassingly paralyzable. None of these processes actually are. And so there was a lot of just learning that you have to go through initially to figure out, like, well... I don't know, let's look at this data set, let's look at this model, how we're decomposing the model, what we're doing with it, in order to start getting some estimations that you can then use for the full scale. You can then say, great, let's run a quick test and figure out what's actually happening here on a small subset, and use that to estimate what you really actually need. And then two, I think you have to, as you do the full scale thing, because of course nothing's perfect when you estimate, so you actually run it, I think a couple of things that you mentioned. One is, you know the cleanup and teardown of these of these systems is is critically important. You know I had a team once that um, we spun up a big GPU cluster, ran on a Friday, ran during the week, whatever. They forgot to turn it off on a Friday evening, and we burned you know tens of thousands of dollars because it just sat idle over the weekend. They just forgot. They just forgot. So having stuff around that, just typical code developing processes here, I think is important. And then again, actually spending the energy to go estimate yeah. is the other part of this. Yeah, and you know, I'm giving you a little bit of a hard time, uh, but you know, you, you don't so. even have to give it 
get it right the first time. I mean, we can, you know, let's get the biggest one and get it out of production and measure what's working. And then we can kind of work backwards from there. Right. You know, it's just, the point is just don't forget about it. Right. You don't have to, you don't have to get it perfect or right every time, but make sure you monitor it. And it, you know, it's, that's the same when we design systems as well, uh, that are non-machine learning software systems. We often over provision them and aren't very efficient. And, we look at that and over time we improve it and improve it, but that it just goes back to, there's a lot more engineering, engineering and resource and processes around these things than just the modeling. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. So in conclusion, our top six, right? We started with the design first approach, really like starting with that end user in mind. Keep it simple. Statistician is my favorite last word on that S there, which is really about like use the simplest solution that's going to solve your problem. And maybe you get smarter and better and incrementally over time, but don't overcomplicate the problem. And both those should be done before you do anything in machine learning or AI, really, to start with those two things. And then if you are going to do it, really understand the limitations of your data. Both like does it have the failure modes in that case of aviation that we talked about? Um, is there a different way to reformulate the problem? Because, you know, Einstein once said if he was given an hour to solve a problem, he'd spend 50 minutes thinking about how to solve it and 10 minutes to actually solve it or some equivalent to that that ratio. Um, Number four is there's more engineering in an AI or ML solution than there is AI or ML. And again, this is about all of those systems surrounding that from how are you going to ingest the data? How do you guarantee that it's on time and it's of high quality all the way through how are you going to deliver that model to actually activate and have real value created? Number five, the decomposition problem, which is that you can't decompose machine learning modeling in the same way that you might be prone to if you think about it from a software development standpoint. And so again, like maybe there's geospatial components, maybe there's temporal components, and you have all these barriers and silos that are natural to the organization that come from Conway's law. And so don't forget about that and, and reformulate how you approach problems and solutioning those problems to take advantage of everything at your disposal, not just what happens to be in your organizational component. And the last one is the uh, data scientists don't know anything about costs. And, and like really the point here is, it's really easy to forget these systems are really expensive. Um, you know, it is the high cre- high interest credit card of, of the development world. It's really easy to forget um, just very simple things like, did I turn off the cluster? <laughs> Am I actually optimizing this? Do I really need the one terabyte of, of memory? Um, sometimes you do, and that's okay. And you should use it if you need it, but just be thoughtful about that. And I think engineering best practices really come to bear in that domain. So that wraps up today's podcast. Again, Jason, thank you so much for joining and your gray-haired insights are always welcome. Sarah, thank you for keeping us honest as always. And for those of you who would like to learn more, please visit the insights page at credera.com. Thanks for listening and I hope you join us again.